What is the famous French chef Alexis Sawyer known for? And one of the great exploration missions to the New World had something to do with sex. <laughs> what explorer took on that adventure and what was it? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Here we are, and I think we're at the week number 29 or 30 of our shows that began with the COVID emergency. Still going. We're still going, still having fun. So is the COVID. Yes. So let's launch right in. Well, Marcia, you've probably suffered all those years in high school through all those dates and all those explorers and never heard that one of the great exploration missions had to do with sex. Did you know that? Of course not. Okay. <laughs> one explorer took on the adventure, and what was it all about? You tell me. I, I'm breathless waiting. You are breathless waiting. <laughs> you've heard of Ponce de Leon. Ah, uh, Ponce. And the Fountain of Youth. Yeah. It, we all thought, oh, it's just an everlasting thing. That's all it was. They thought there was, no, no. Right. It wasn't supposed to make you younger or shed those skin wrinkles like in the cartoons and the stories and the songs. Oh. It had a lot more to do with sex than anything oh. else. Because the Fountain of Youth was a legendary stream that could miraculously cure sexual debility. So they were looking for the Viagra of their yeah, time. That's it. You got it. Who knew? So Ponce de Leon left Puerto Rico, went to Florida to find it. He didn't, but he did find the Gulf Stream, which uh, <laughs> which we know that uh, was named later by Benjamin Franklin. But yeah. Right. Ponce kind of found it because that's when he sailed back. It came back faster than he Then than he, he found took. it after Ben? No, Marsh. I'm getting get confused. In, you're getting into the weeds that are full of reeds because we're talking about the ocean here. All right. So um, the Fountain of Youth was all about yeah. sex. Um, it wasn't about uh, okay. eternal life. Well, <laughs> well, from sex to food, which is a nice combo, actually. What is the famous French chef Alexis Sawyer, S-O-Y-E-R, known for? You know, I have to admit, I don't know. I've never heard of Alexis Sawyer. I've heard of Chef Boyardee. Well, that's really close. <laughs> Who's the fellow, James, is it James uh, Beard? I've heard of him, and yeah. I've had Julia Child and Very some of the good. people we see on TV. But tell me who this person was, and what well, was he known for? He's not really famous today. I see. So it's not a surprise Okay. us and our listeners never heard of him. But this Frenchman was the most celebrated chef in Victorian England. So, hmm. so he was French and in England and celebrated all the time. But on the side, he was a very charitable sort who took great interest in the poor and particularly the great Irish potato famine. Bottom line on this, he went to Dublin to help and invented what we know today as the soup kitchen. Oh, really? He had a way to feed the starving masses, he thought, would be with bread and a hearty, healthy soup of his own making. So when word went out that old uh, Sawyer was making soup, everybody wanted to come. Because <laughs> he was a famous <laughs> chef at the time. Yeah, yeah. But uh, to support his project, he wrote uh, cookbooks and pamphlets because uh, everybody knew his name. And uh, originally, it was called the Famine Soup. Uh, and the idea 
quickly, almost instantly spread around the world and remains, sadly, to this day. The soup kitchen, yeah. So one of my takeaways from this story was that his love of cooking and charitable work is another example how how putting your passions or interests together can sometimes result in helping the world with problems. Yeah, really. And and he was a world-famous chef known for great cuisine. Yeah. But he also had compassion for people. Yeah. Wow. And uh, he put the two together and voila, the soup kitchen. Okay, well, I have a French question since you brought up a French chef. (laughs) Where does the French word curfew come from? And that's in the news where we hear there's a lockdown and people have a curfew to be done at certain times of the day or night. No, I don't know. It comes from the French couvre-feu, spelled couvre, C-O-U-V-R-E, which means cover the fire. Oh. So originally Ah. a curfew was the time of the evening when you were required to extinguish fires, candles, and lamps for safety's sake. Didn't want to have the city burned down because somebody left their candle burning, you know. So that's how curfew became associated with nights and safety. Curfew. Cover the fire. Here's a question from your never-used Christmas present, the Beatles Trivia Pursuit. What's that? (laughs) My sister got us this set. We talked about it before. A few years ago. And uh, yeah, it was a Beatles box, and it's a trivial pursuit, and... I, I just never thought I could find three or four people to sit down and, and do it with me. So it's okay. It's sure. in the box, but it's got great <laughs> trivia, and that's what Marcia pulls those cards out every once in a while and has a question for me. So all right, I I'm game. Which Beatle told the press in early 1969 that the Beatles would be broke in six months if Apple wasn't streamlined? And Apple was what? Their company. Their, was it a record company? Well, it was their company. They had music. They had a fashion shop where they sold things yeah, so and artwork. Not to be confused with Apple computers. So the quote again was? He told the press that the Beatles would be broken six months if Apple wasn't streamlined. Now, that's a good question. I'd say John Lennon, but I could say George Harrison, too. I'll say George Harrison. Well, wrong. John Lennon. And okay. he is in the news this birthday week because he would have been? 80 years old. <laughs> Very good. That's amazing, That's, isn't it? Yeah. Imagine. Uh, here's one more Beatle quickie. Uh, what could Paul do with a guitar that none of the members of John's first band could do? He could play, what was the name of that song? It was a song he could play, wasn't it? Nope. Oh, it wasn't? Nope. It's something he could do. With the guitar? Yeah. and none Play of... it behind his back? <laughs> no. Behind his head? Above his head? No. Set so, it on fire? Something very elementary. What? He could tune a oh. guitar. <laughs> he could tune a guitar? Yeah. Get him in the band. Yeah. That's, uh, John had a, you know, he had that first band and he hired uh, Paul and they met at the church or something. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It was a church social event. So anyway, happy birthday. But there was a song John. that... Uh, that he could play that none of the other band members oh, could. Oh, really? Yeah. She, Not I believe a that was Beatle it. aficionado like okay. well, some people. Are you a pilgrim aficionado? <laughs> I am married to you. Being a person descended from a pilgrim, <laughs> there's a shirt tail religion uh, distinction, isn't it? But yeah. it's kind of fun. Uh-huh. So what favorite beverage did the pilgrims introduce to America? Uh, Coming up the 400th anniversary of the pilgrims' landing. 
Real? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. John so Lennon. So 400 Pilgrim's years ago, the Pilgrims landed with this beverage. With this beverage. Wow, beer? That's exactly right. Yeah. You would think of the Pilgrims as these pious people and everything, <laughs> but they brought the first beer, and that's documented in a 1622 publication, Mort's Relation. Beer was a mainstay of long ship voyages because it was a, essentially a processed food, so it was safe. Beer, because it had been boiled, was purer than water. Oh, yeah. So it was safer to keep on board So the even ship. the kids drank it. Yeah, even kids drank it, yeah. exactly. And according to that book, Mort's Relation, in 1622, the pilgrims, the Mayflower pilgrims, not only brought beer with them, they settled where they did because their supplies, especially beer, was running low. <laughs> they knew they needed something safe to drink, so they stopped in Massachusetts, went to a bar in Boston. No, no, so they went... <laughs> They went ashore and they found some fresh water. So you can thank the Pilgrims for bringing beer to America. And if that doesn't impress you, you can also thank them for America's first college, first bookstore, and the first newspaper. The Pilgrims founded all of those, too. What was the first college? I don't know. Was it William and Mary or was it Yale or was it? No. It was. It's coming up on one of my questions. Here's an interesting factoid before I move on. Okay. In the 17th century, it was the opinion of many scientists that migratory birds left the colder climates to spend winter on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> when was this? In the 17th century. you got to be kidding. No. So about the same time as the pilgrims left... <laughs> Europe, the the scientists were saying uh, yeah. that migratory birds left warmer climates in no, the winter. No, left cold climates. Oh, left cold to yes. go to the moon yeah. in yeah. the wintertime. Yeah. Oh, that's very, very strange. It is, but... Why do we often call the conclusion of anything the bitter end? Uh, it's probably the end of something you would drink, and in the bottom of the glass, it's bitter. Mm-hmm. It would have some bitters or bitter. Yeah. Would that be some kind of beer also? No. And but, it was my first thought also. But this actually ties into your theory about so many phrases that come to us from the nautical world. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, bitter does mean sour or distasteful. Right. But in the nautical world, bitter means the posts on the ship's deck where cables and ropes are wound and tied. So when they're securing a ship to the dock or while at anchor, the very end of the rope or cable holding the vessel secure is called the bitter end. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. I had no I never heard that one before. Me either. And I know you always find so many things that come from There are many, many nautical terms. You're okay. you're right. It's fascinating. Okay, Bob. Okay. What, you... what famous rock and roll song by Elvis Presley was written by a high school English teacher. Really? Yeah. Well, I I know a lot of Elvis trivia. And I never heard this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you come to me with Beatles, I come to you with Elvis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll just say, wear my ring around your neck. Or Long Tall Sally. Or. <laughs> <laughs> or. Or. Why would you say any of those? I'm just thinking of high school mindset, Long Tall Sally. She's oh, me. I yeah. see. But uh, This no, has nothing to, to do, do with, with high that. school. Okay, go ahead. What is it? Heartbreak Hotel. Oh, that's a good one, too. Now, that was written by May Boren Axton. She was in her late 30s or early 40s. She was actually a journalism degree major from the University of Oklahoma. But then when her husband, John Axton, an Army officer, was stationed in um, Jacksonville, 
They moved there in 1949. She taught at three high schools in Jacksonville, and she started writing songs. Now, in 1955, she and musician Tommy Durden wrote Heartbreak Hotel. He had started this song after reading a Miami Herald story about a man who'd killed himself. He left behind a note. I walk a lonely street. He brought that to her, and she said, there should be a Heartbreak Hotel at the end of that lonely street. And that's... The song was born. That's the light. Probably one of the greatest rock songs of all time. Now, not only did she write that song, she introduced 19-year-old Elvis Presley to Tom Parker, his manager. Colonel? Colonel Tom, after a performance in Jacksonville. And Ah. she actually helped promote Elvis, and she worked with all kinds of artists. I hope she got some bucks for that. She wrote 200 rock and roll songs. Really? 200. And guess my baby loved me. Exactly. Find a new place to dwell. Guess who? Her son was. I give up. Hoyt Axton was Mayborn Axton's son, and he wrote Greenback Dollar for the Kingston Trio. He wrote The Pusher for Steppenwolf. He wrote Joy to the World. Remember, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. He wrote that song. So he, he had great success as a singer, actor, and TV performer, too. So two very talented people, mother and son, both talents in the music business. But to think that Heartbreak Hotel was written by a high school English teacher, I just thought that was so strange. You yeah, know? it's very so touching, different. too. The, it is the a touching story, story. The story behind well, it. Well, at the end of that lonely street, there should be a Heartbreak, Heartbreak Hotel. Hotel. Well, here's an old riddle, Bob. Mm-hmm. And if you've... Remember it, then just tell me and I'll stop. Okay. A man is driving in his car when he comes upon an automobile accident. Since he is a doctor, he stops to help and discover to his horror that the injured person is his own son. Hmm. Does this sound familiar? No. Okay. He rushes the son to the hospital where the boy is taken into surgery. And the surgeon enters, looks at the boy and exclaims, I cannot operate on him. He's my son. How can this be? Uh, that one I don't understand. The doctor goes and finds this son, his son at an accident. Yeah. Then he takes him to the hospital, and the doctor there says, I can't operate on him. Yeah. He's my son. The surgeon says that. There's, well, somebody's a liar, Marsh. No. That's the answer. <laughs> no. It, somebody hasn't moved along with the times. I okay. thought after 30 years ago, I got this wrong. I've come a long way, but apparently you haven't. Tell me. His mother was the surgeon. Oh, it was mother and yeah. a father. Okay, of course. See, isn't that interesting? Yeah, you it, think of two men. Yeah. Yeah, wow, that shows that's, bias. Yeah. A lot of bias yeah, there. That's, uh... Shame on me. <laughs> Shame on me. Yes, indeed. Okay, let's take a break. We'll be back with more of The Off-Ramp in just a moment with Bob and Marsha Smith. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Marsha, I have a question for you. One architectural house feature seems to be making a comeback in America. What is it? What architectural house feature Um, is making a comeback in America with new houses? The dormer? No. The family room? No. The rec room? No. I don't know. The front porch. Oh, of course. And I love front porches. According to the Wall Street Journal, the front porch is enjoying a new golden age, especially during the pandemic. Yes. Because it's a place where friends and neighbors can gather and gossip and flirt. You know, they can do anything without worrying too much about virus transmission. I love sitting on our front porch uh, around 
before dinner and people come by and talk to me, it's wonderful. In the word of Claude Stevens, the front porch is the only place when you can feel like you're outside and inside at the same time, out with all the neighbors or alone reading a book. Uh And I didn't realize this, but the front porch is uniquely American. Really? Uh, Europe depended on town squares and sidewalk cafes for their casual encounters, but starting in the 19th century, every respectable house in the U.S. was built with a front porch. All the rich people's houses were built with front porches, and the poorer people started adding theirs. Well, good for them. There was one home style that nearly killed the front porch in our lifetime. What was that home Victorian? style? Victorian? No. The, uh... No, no. In our lifetime. Oh, salt. The salt box? No. The ranch house. Ah, the ranch house craze yeah. of the 1950s. Ah. For example, almost none of those 2,000 homes in the famous Levittown subdivision had a front porch. Yeah, they got the patio. And uh, they can trace the front porch's return to a 1960s book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Jane Jacobs argued that eyes on the streets and butts on the porch kept neighborhoods safer. How you bet. So by 1955, 42% of new homes were being built with front porches. Ten years later, that had risen to 52. Today, 65% of new U.S. homes are being built with front porches. And guess what? They can be a good investment. If you add a new front porch, yeah, might set you back $20,000 or more. But no matter what it costs, a study shows you can recoup 90% or more of the investment for a front porch at resale. I believe that. That's excellent. Yeah, so very interesting things. The front porch, it comes from the uh, the forgotten front porch is making a comeback. That was in the Wall Street Journal in September. All right. Why do we say that takes the cake when something is done surprisingly well, Bob? That takes the cake because that's what we want. We want cake, Marcia. <laughs> America wants cake. Anywhere people want cake. It's not just America. People anywhere in the world. I don't know the answer. Okay. Yeah. African-Americans came up with this Hmm. of the Old South, highlighted their social season with a dancing contest called the Cakewalk. The contestants often practiced for months and included couples of all ages. And the prize was a huge cake, which was set in the center of the hall around the dancers. Mm -hmm. And they all exhibited their skills. A panel of judges would watch the innovative dancers until a winner was chosen, who would then... Ah, they'd say, that takes the cake. There you go. There you go. Well, I've heard about that. That, Yeah, the cakewalk was a big cultural thing in in a lot of communities, but especially in African-American communities. Interesting. I used to love, as a little girl, the cakewalk at the May Festival at Garden Homes School. Uh, And you just walk around, and it's it's like musical chairs. Yeah, right. There were numbers. And if you, oh, I would just be over the moon if I want a cake. I took it home (laughs) to my parents. Look at what I got! Speaking of eating, I've got an eating question. Well, that's wonderful, Bob. Okay, here's what it is, Marsh. Pay attention now. (laughs) What famous restaurant got its name from the way its customers ate their food? Say it again. What famous restaurant got its name from the way customers ate their food? Ah, this is in America? Yeah, it's all over the world. You might not think of it as a restaurant. It's a place to eat, though. Well, in and out (laughs) No, there you go. Well, that's kind of good. That's a good idea. I don't know. Dunkin' Donuts. Really? Yeah. During World War II, William Rosenberg of Quincy, Massachusetts, he worked at a shipyard. 
and he and his fellow shipyard workers were frustrated by the limited lunch options they had. Yeah. So he borrowed $1,000 and he bought a snack truck and he named the snack truck Industrial Luncheon Services. <laughs> Doesn't <laughs> have a lot of panache. Actually, it's funny. Industrial Luncheon Services. They sold sandwiches, coffee, snacks, and... Donuts. Donuts. Now, he noticed the coffee and donuts made up to 50% of their sales. Yeah. So he opened up a second location. He called that the open kettle, but he kept watching people. Uh-huh. He noticed they were dunking their donuts in, in his coffee. coffee. So he changed the name to Dunkin' Donuts. That started in 1950. 1950. The original restaurant is still there in Quincy, Massachusetts. But they're all over the world, Dunkin' Donuts. Isn't that Donuts. great? He was observing his customers' right. behavior. A good entrepreneur is yeah. always looking at what the yeah. customers are doing and how and, they're using the product. Yeah, I love it. Okay. In 1776, William and Mary College established the first what? Well, that was the college I thought maybe the Pilgrims established, they William were, and Mary. This was the second college. Can you give me any clues, as you would say? Well, it's something we still have today. Harvard and Yale followed suit years later, but they Football. were- Football. <laughs> no, that's not it, is it? No. Okay, the first college uh, bookstore, uh, dorm rooms. No, it's the first scholarship fraternity known as Phi Beta Kappa. Mm. It was founded by the original 50 members of William and Mary, and three years later, Harvard and Yale did the same. Here's a bonus question. Okay. Who were- William and Mary. That was uh, King and Queen, wasn't it? Yeah, very okay. good. Yeah, King William the Third and Queen Mary the Second. Hmm. It was founded in 1693 and is the second oldest institution in the U.S. Harvard was the first. Okay, so Harvard was the from first. the Pilgrims. Uh, right. I'll be darned. Okay. Well, now we have the answer. Okay. Okay. We always think of Charles Goodyear as a person who invented rubber, but was he a chemist? Yes. No, he wasn't. <laughs> I was so emphatic. He was a business failure. <laughs> <laughs> As many of us are. In fact, he was once sent to prison for debt, so he decided if he could find a way to do something that he could improve it, it would improve his fortunes, and so rubber was the thing. That discovery was an accident. He spilled his mixture of chemicals on a hot stove. Unfortunately, the patent he filed in 1844 was for vulcanized rubber for a very simple process, and many people stole it. It cost him his fortune, the infringements on his patents. And when he died in 1860, he was more in debt than ever, uh, owing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Always happens. That's a shame. Okay. Okay. Years ago, Bob, Yes. this cream was sold in pharmacies and was called Dr. Bunting's Sunburn Cream. Dr. What? Bunting's sunburn cream. What do they call it today? Still in drugstores today? That's why I said, what do we call it today? Okay, so is it, uh, it's not noxema, is it, or it something is. like that? Okay. They said it could knock eczema. Oh, uh, knock eczema. Yeah. I see, knock uh, eczema yeah, out. that was part of their advertising. And then uh, soon after, it become it became noxema. I'll be darned. And that's how it, uh, from an advertising campaign, that they use, then they think, well, let's, let's make it more interesting. And nobody cares about Dr. Bunting anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Dr. Bunting? <laughs> Doesn't sound right. So it was like an old patent medicine at the time. Yeah. Okay. Marsha, why was the name of the first man to set foot on Antarctica unknown for 134 years? 
Oh, he froze to death up there and well, nobody knew Well, I think, I think that's what happened, yeah. Yeah? Oh. The log of the ship he sailed in and presumably the man himself were lost oh. in Antarctica. The man's name was John Davis. He was an American sealer. He hunted seals and he set foot on Antarctica on February 7th, 1821. Why do we know this? It was in a logbook of the ship which was found in 1955. How many years transpired? 134 wow. years. Yeah, from 1821 to 1955. Okay, I've got another one here. Now, let me ask you this question. This is names, business names. You have, we've done two of them so far. We did Noxima mm-hmm. and we did Dunkin' Donuts. What famous pharmacy chain never sold a drug until its fifth year in business? And what does its name mean? Two questions, Marsh. Easy. <laughs> Rexall? Rexall, that's all. Uh, Walgreens? No. Uh, CVS? CVS. Really? CVS. And what does it stand for? Um, Since they didn't sell any drugs there for the first five years. Yeah. What? What does it stand for? It was Consumer Value Stores. Really? That was the name. 1963, brothers Stanley and Sidney Goldstein and their business partner, Ralph Hoagland, they opened the first consumer value stores with health and beauty items in Lowell, Massachusetts. And the very next year, it opened 17 stores, and it added a little CVS shield, the initials inside a shield, next to the words consumer value store. And then in its fifth year of business, it added its first pharmacy. Today, it's got 9,900 retail locations. So that's what CVS stands for, huh. consumer value stores. I would have never guessed that. I do have another name of a chain I'm going to ask you about. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Famous grocery store chain. It's predominantly in the South. But what grocery store's chain was inspired by a train slowing down next to a farmer's field? I had never heard this story before. Oh, it's not Piggly Wiggly. Yes, it is. Is it? Yeah. They started in Memphis. Now, I've always known that Piggly Wiggly was the first self-serve grocery store you know, before that, you had to go in and talk to the grocer and ask for things. Yeah. Uh, I'd like that up there on the shelf. Well, in 1916, Clarence Saunders, he was a young wholesale food salesman, and he was returning home to Tennessee from Indiana. And uh, on the train home, the train slowed down next to a farm, and he saw a sow standing in the field surrounded by six feeding piglets. And they were serving themselves dinner, right? Because Mama was just standing there. That's how he got the idea? He thought, why not let human customers serve themselves? themselves. So he called it Piggly Wiggly. He just, because that was the inspiration. Oh, well, that's. There's a patent for the first floor plan. You go inside and where everything was. Uh He came up with that in 1917. It was a huge success. Um, People could just go in and pick whatever they wanted to off the shelves. Didn't have to stand in line waiting for a grocer to go to the back room to get what they wanted. Wow. That's amazing that that's how it came about. Yeah. What you got there? Okay, Bob, why do we say that the person in charge, quote, calls the shots? Hmm. Why the person in charge calls the shots. Can you give me any hint as to where this came from? Did it come from a business realm or a military round? Game. Oh, it came from a game? Mm Mm-hmm. The person in charge calls the shots. Something to do with guns, I take it. Nope. No, not? Mm-mm. Okay, what? Pool. Oh, really? Yep, yep. Uh, calling the shots means being in control or taking responsibility for critical decisions. The expression comes from a form of billiards. 
In the game of straight pool, the person shooting is required to specify both the ball he or she intends to strike and the specific pocket it's going to land in. Oh, yeah, calling the shots. So, in the mid-20th century, calling the shots moved out of the smoky pool hall and into everyday usage. So... It, it's not that it hasn't been around in the regular vernacular that long. I thought it had been around for years. Yeah, well, it was in pool halls, but uh, not till the mid-century did we put it elsewhere. Okay, Bob, I'm going to end with a quote. A fence around a cemetery is foolish, says Arthur Brisbane, for those inside can't come out and those outside don't want to get in. No way. Yeah. Nobody wants to go there. Okay. Well, uh, you... Let's not go there for a while anyway. Yeah. Okay, I guess that's it for now on this fall edition of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Join us again next time. We'll have some more fun. Bye-bye. Bye. Can you see us waving? We're waving. (laughs) We're waving here. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.